All nature is obedient to law, he says, and he has a footnote here. A law of nature or a physical law may be merely a formal statement of what regularly occurs in nature. Or it may denote the cause of such regularity. We use the expression in the latter sense. Let us then define a law of nature as, quote, the cause of a certain regularity observed in nature, end quote. It must be inferred, however, must not be inferred, however, that we claim any exact knowledge of the cause of each set of regularly occurring phenomena. That the cause exists, we are certain, but as to its precise nature and mode of operation, we need not profess to know anything. Now, of course, that's kind of humble because what he's doing is he's saying there's always room for mystery, even in nature, by the way. Nature is filled with mystery, and scientists with any sense of integrity, of course, will admit that. This is why they're on this constant quest for scientific discovery, at least the good scientists. The bad ones, I think, are just out to prove their, their pet theories. That the universe is obedient to, to law is a truth which forms the very basis of all physical science. Inanimate matter is subject to law. In astronomy, the laws of Kepler and Newton have exhibited the heavens as forming so exact a mechanical system that seemingly irregular occurrences such as eclipses, uh, eclipses and the return of comets can be predicted with certainty. In physics, the laws of sound, heat, light, and electricity work so perfectly that results can be calculated in advance with mathematical accuracy. In chemistry, substances are found to have definite attractions and affinities and to combine according to fixed laws. In all other branches and subdivisions of physical science, the same regularity is observed. Everywhere, like agents and like circumstances produce the same effects. And of course, when he says agents here, he's using the word, um, well, philosophically. Um, I guess I could just say he's using the word intelligently. Uh, we tend to think of an agent as like, you know, the secret agent man, you know, an FBI agent or something. But an agent is simply an operator, a doer, huh? From ago, agere, to do. So, and when you use the word agent in this sense, you're talking about something that does something. So everywhere, like agents in like circumstances produce the same effects. Animate matter is subject to law. All living things are subject to fixed laws of nutrition, growth, and reproduction. Plants, animals, and men develop from a single living cell. In the higher forms of life, in man, for instance, that cell multiplies itself many times, gradually building up a great complexity of organs, such as the eye, the ear, the heart, and lungs. Every living thing possesses the capacity to repair its worn parts. Among the lower animals, every individual of the same species is endowed um, with the same set of useful appetites and tendencies in connection with the quest for food, the defense of life, the propagation of its kind, and the care of its offspring. The same holds for man, who, in addition, possesses inclinations in keeping with his rational nature. Impelled by the desire for truth and the love of beauty, his mind builds up many wonderful sciences and produces all of the marvels of literature and art. In its movements, and it's subject to certain laws, the laws of thought, just as the seed developing to a stem, leaf, and flower, is subject to the laws of growth. Animate matter is subject to and served by the laws of inanimate matter. 
All living things are subject to the laws of inanimate matter. Nutrition, growth, and many other processes take place in accordance with the laws of chemistry. The laws of gravitation and energy are as valid for the living as for the non-living. The tree, for instance, which stores up the energy of the sun's rays, returns it later on when its withered branches return or burn on the hearth. Animate matter is served by the laws of inanimate matter. Examples. Gravitation has so placed the earth in relation to the sun that it receives the moderate quantity of light and heat necessary for the support of organic life. The air contains in every 100 parts nearly 79 of nitrogen and 21 of oxygen gas, together with 0.04 of carbonic acid, a minute proportion of ammonia and other constituents, and a variable quantity of watery vapor. In pure nitrogen, a man would suffocate. In pure oxygen, his body would burn out rapidly like a piece of tinder. Without carbonic acid, plant life would be impossible. The plant exhales oxygen and inhales carbonic acid. By the way, he's talking about um, carbon dioxide. The animal exhales carbonic acid and inhales oxygen. Thus, each ministers to the life of the other. The water, drawn by evaporation from the sea, drifts in clouds and descends in rain on the mountains, thus feeding the wells, the streams, the rivers, so necessary for living things. Bodies contract with a fall of temperature, and yet water expands when its temperature falls below 4 degrees centigrade. Hence, ice is lighter than water and forms the surface covering which, being of low conductivity, prevents the rapid congealing of the entire body of water and the destruction of living things beneath. All coincidence, right? The whole universe, we may say in conclusion, is guided by law. Everywhere there is order. Everywhere there is admirable arrangement. Everywhere there are fixed modes of action. The laws of nature could not have been produced by chance or by a cause acting blindly, which is but another name for chance. It is necessary to refute the absurdity that chance could have generated, you know, is it? He's, he's asking it as a question. By the way, of course, you know, Charles Darwin had already done his work, right? By the time, um, so Monsignor Archbishop Sheehan was born in eight, 1870, um, and if, if I'm remembering that correctly, uh, and so the, the Darwin had already done his work. Um, and it was slowly um, sort of matriculating all throughout the earth um, <clears throat> among people, and it was destroying people's faith. So he's obviously going after Darwin here without naming him, I believe. Is it necessary to refute the absurdity that chance could have generated a law? Law is the exact opposite of chance. Fixity is the characteristic of law. Variability, the characteristic of chance. Four rods of equal length flung aimlessly from the hand may fall into the exact form of a square. It is barely conceivable that this may happen once or twice. It is utterly inconceivable that it should happen a hundred times in unbroken succession. But what should be thought of the conceivability of its never happening otherwise? Now, he's got a footnote here. We abstract for the moment from the rare 
interpositions to which, according to the doctrine of miracles, the laws of nature are subject. Okay, so obviously this could be done miraculously, but that's the very nature of a miracle is that <clears throat> the being who wrote the laws of nature can, in certain instances, by his uh, sovereign will, uh, lift those laws, suspend those laws in order to prove a higher point. And that point is always going to be something that d- directs us towards our supernatural end, something above nature, right? Because again, something that transcends the laws of nature by its very nature points to supernature. All right. Um, Yet, this last must be realized in order to give us the basis of a law. In other words, this last. In other words, that, that you, you fling these four sticks from your hand every time, and every time they land in a perfect square. Um, so, but, but that would have to happen if that was somehow the law of you know, throwing four sticks. If the generation by chance of such a simple law be impossible, how can we measure the absurdity of supposing that chance could have produced the vast complexity of laws that rule the universe, the laws whose operation guides the course of planets and accounts for the growth and reproduction of living things, the instinct and tendencies of animals, the work of bees, the nest building of birds, the activity of the mind of man. The laws of nature have been imposed by a lawgiver. The arguments by which we have shown that the laws of nature are not due to chance avail also to prove that those laws cannot be due to any unintelligent cause we choose to name. Therefore, they must be due to some great intelligence distinct from matter. They must have been ordained and imposed by a lawgiver. And as the statesman frames his legislation for a definite purpose, so also the lawgiver of the universe imposed his laws to achieve his ends, the ends, rather, that he desired. The orderly arrangement produced by his laws was intentional. It was in accordance with his preconceived plan or design. Now, he's going to get into some particulars here that I find um, most interesting, one of which is kind of gross, so please bear with me. Uh, Observe how the necessity for an intelligent author of the laws of nature is enforced by considerations such as the following. Great intelligence and skillful workmanship are required to construct a steam engine that can feed itself with fuel and water, but indefinitely greater would be the intelligence and power which would make the iron ore cone come of itself out of the bowels of the earth, smelt and temper itself, form and fit together all the parts of the engine, make the engine lay in the store, uh, in the store of water and coal, kindle its furnace, and repair its own parts. Yet this is an everyday process of nature in the case of living organisms. And as intelligence is needed to guide the hands of the mechanic who builds the engine, much more is it needed to combine and direct the lifeless forces of nature in producing more marvelous results. The lower animals in the work which they do often exhibit instances of wonderful order. They perform with great skill a series of actions for the achievement of a definite purpose. Take the following example. There is a kind of sand wasp. Now, 
he's got that footnoted, and he he notifies us in the footnote that it's the uh, Amophila hirusta. That's apparently its um, Latin name, which <clears throat> sounds a bit more Greek than Latin to me. Um, there is a kind of sand wasp which prepares a worm as food for its larvae by cutting as with a surgical lance and paralyzing all the motor nerve centers so as to deprive the worm, worm of movement, but not of life. The sand wasp then lays its eggs beside the worm and covers all with clay. It has got its surgical skill without instruction or practice. It lives for but one season. It has not been taught by its parents, for it has never seen them. It does not teach its offspring, for it dies before they emerge from the earth. It has not got its skill by heredity. For what does heredity mean in such a case? It means that some ancestor of the insect, having accidentally struck the worm in nine or ten nerve centers, managed somehow or other to transmit to all of its descendants a facility for achieving the same success. But it is mere folly to say that this chance act of the ancestor, rather than any other chance act, should become a fixed habit in all its progeny. And could the original success have been due to chance? Where, where, the, uh, where the number of points that might have been struck with infinitely, uh, excuse me, where the number of points that might have been struck was infinitely great, the chance of striking the nerve centers alone was zero. But perhaps the insect gets its skill by reasoning. No, because reasoning does not give dexterity, because it is impossible that each insect of the same tribe and all are equally expert, should discover by independent reasoning exactly the same process. Because when the insect is confronted with the slightest novel difficulty, it acts like a creature without reason and is powerless to solve it. Therefore, the intelligence which the sand wasp exhibits does not reside in the insect itself, but in the mind of God. It was he who planned the work. It was he who moves the insect to perform it. Now, there's a, um, a footnote here. Um, all right. Uh, on, the, on the man who, who, who brought this argument forward, Favre, the chief authority on entomology, from whose work Souvenirs Entomologiques, um, published in Paris by Delgrave, uh, the above example is taken, says that the behavior of the larvae is still more astounding. While eating into the live worm, they take care to avoid the vital parts. Were, were they to injure even one of those, the worm would die and they would perish for want of fresh food. This, says Fabre, is the miracle of miracles. So I told you that some of this stuff is gross. And yes, this is really disgusting. But um, this sandworm, uh, this uh, sand uh, uh, wasp, um, I, I should say, um, presents us with an incredible argument. There's no um, intelligence in this sand wasp. It's not experimenting. Uh, it hasn't learned from its parents because it's never known them. Uh, it can't pass on what it learns to its offspring because they will never know it. It will die before they're born. And by sheer instinct, 
this thing finds this particular species of worm, injects something in to n- neutralize its um, its its sensitive um, its its nerve structure, and then cuts an incision in it, and then buries it with the eggs right next to it. <clears throat> and then when those things hatch, they know exactly the larvae know exactly how to eat of this delectable worm in such a way that the worm will still still stay alive while it's being eaten 